Think about how many thousands of people you've met in your lifetime. How many are acquaintances? How many are friends? How well do you know any of them? I'm your host, Steve Waxman, and I want to get to know people a little bit better. I want to find out about the journey they've taken in their lives to get to where they are today. These are my conversations with human beings. Michael Hollett is the publisher of Next Magazine, Canada's music and culture guide. In the 1980s, Michael partnered to start Toronto's groundbreaking Now Magazine. You know, it's no surprise that Michael spent most of his life in publishing. He was practically born into the business. I've been thinking about this stuff a bit lately because it's a reflective time. And, you know, the first Christmas present I ever got was a Toronto Star um, metal delivery, uh, like, uh, shipping truck. The first Christmas party I ever went to was the Toronto at the Toronto Press Club. My grandfather was editor at the, an editor at the Telegram, and my father was a, a writer and photographer and cartoonist at the Star. My mother freelanced for all those papers and and McLean's, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, was also a freelancer. My parents met at a newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, yeah, like in Hamilton. And, you know, when I'd go to the exhibition, I, I don't even know if you know, there's a building, a beautiful building to me called the Press Building. And my grandfather also, in those days, you could do <laughs> conflict rules were a little different. And he also did uh, PR for the, uh, for the X in the summer. So I would visit him in the press building and there's a little balcony and I would stand there with him looking out at the uh, X and thinking this newspaper stuff is all right. <laughs> <laughs> so were you, were you conceived on a stack of, uh, a stack of Toronto stars? Just about man, just about, <laughs> you know, it's like, so yeah, I grew up around newspapers. I mean, full on, like, like kind of more old school in the sense that it was, it, my family were called reporters and editors, but they weren't called journalists. They didn't think of it that way. They were like, they were newsmen. That tended to be the term, even though there were lots of women around, in fact, uh, in terms of being reporters. But I would, you know, I would hang out at the Star Building, and the Star Building I would hang out at is the one that was the inspiration for the Daily Planet. It's one of those wedding cake buildings that was on King Street, and it's gone. Oh, okay. So I'd go hang out there. I'd hang out at the telly. And then we'd all go like to the senator, and I'd be this little six-year-old kid on the on the stool at the diners, and all these news folks would be smoking cigarettes and having important conversations. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, you could say it was it was really in my blood. <laughs> like when I was like when I was a little kid, I would um, like when I was I would interview the local politicians running for parliament. And then I would make a newspaper. And I'm talking about like when I was in grade five or six. And I'd print my interviews in these newspapers and be convinced people would actually want to buy them. And I would, my friends and I would sell them. And then I would go work for the politician that I thought was the best one. <laughs> I was the only little person under 30 that worked for Robert Stanfield instead of Trudeau because I liked the local conservative candidate. <laughs> I, was a little more cons I was a little more conservative as a young man. <laughs> Oh my God. So obviously that, you know, that led to what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. Well, the funny thing is my mother spent most of my childhood begging me not to go into newspapers, like literally begging me, let's say. And so I had to kind of pretend that was never going to happen. 
<laughs> and because she would say, your fa- grandfather, lo- you know, it, he, she basically talked about newspapers as if as they were a bad lover in the sense that it was just newspapers will break your heart. You'll never make any money. She'd go, your grand, your grandfather never owned his house. He always rented. And that's because of newspapers. And he put all his time into that. So, she, she, you know, really, she was like, be a lawyer, be something, be all these things. And I really didn't know. It wasn't my, I went into university not intending to be a journalist. I intended to be a disgruntled employee somewhere making jokes about the boss. I, I didn't know really doing what, but, it, you know, <laughs> and, uh, so what happened? Well, you know, I say all that, but I, as, as I mentioned, I was constantly making newspapers, you know, I, in, in school and, and, and in the university, <clears throat> I edited the campus newspaper at York, Excalibur. And then um, an uncle of mine was working in Orangeville and they needed somebody to do a maternity leave, uh, to fill in for a maternity leave for an editor in Orangeville. So I took took it as a temporary job. Things went really well. The papers started doing better while I was editing it. And they asked me to stay on. And I stayed on. And then I went from there, edited a paper in Georgetown. And uh, so I was sort of spun on that path. And still, my mom <laughs> was determined to get me out of it. <laughs> so I was So I was visiting Toronto and my girlfriend who's Alice, who, I, who figures in this story very big. Um, I was visiting my mom for lunch. She was consulting for, the, minister, for uh, the Workman's Compensation Board, which is what it was called then. And somehow she tricked me into applying for a job there, which I got, and I ended up being a speechwriter for Lincoln Alexander. So I was writing speeches for the head. Oh, of, wow. Yeah, so I was writing speeches for the head of the, <laughs> of the Workman's Compensation Board because of my mom's trickery, because she wanted me to get a job that paid better. You know, she, she wanted to keep me out of newspapers. But uh, she was one of the first investors in now when I, when I started raising money. So she came around. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. So, when, so, when, so how did you and Alice meet? To keep to be consistent with this, this tale I appear to be weaving, Alice and I met almost the same way my parents met over a, it's called a paste up table, a table where you actually create a newspaper. Alice was Alice was part of a Trotskyist group in downtown Toronto, and they made among other things they made a newspaper that they gave out at political events. I was at York working on the student to get a bunch of people elected to student council, including myself. And we were sort of running as a left-wing coalition. So these Trotskyists let me and my friend use their place to create materials for this election. So we went to to look at that space. Alice was there working on the commie newspaper. So that was literally the first time we saw each other. We won that election in York and I was on the student council and we actually, we hired Alice to be our, executive executive assistant or administrator, whatever you would call it. So she worked for the student council at York. And so then we eventually became a couple. <laughs> so at what point did you guys start discussing the possibility of starting your own paper? I'm pretty sure I dropped it on or out of the blue in the sense that I was now working for the government, thanks to my mother's machinations. And I literally... Just like the cliche, I'm afraid. Well, not, believe me, 
I hate this cliche, but in this particular job, I did have a lot of spare time. And, and I was sort of, I was afraid that I would get seduced by that job. It was a very, I found it easy to do. So I tried to think of things to fill that downtime. And I was trying, yes, I was using, I was trying to use my spare time at that job to think of something constructive. And in the process, I realized that I had made such great connections at York, a lot of people that were interested in media. And I was working at Young and Bloor. So I was, you know, really, that seems north to me now, but (laughs) it felt very, (laughs) it felt very downtown. And, you know, and I was right by a ticket master. So I was constantly getting buying concert tickets for my friends or whatever it was called in those days because I, I could leave my job and go do that. And, you know, it was obvious there was something happening in Toronto. And I had, you know, being a, such a student of newspapers, I mean, I was very familiar with the alternative news weeklies in the States, you know, obviously the Village Voice in particular, and, and you know, and also underground papers. And from my point of view, Toronto didn't really have one. And, you know, I mean, in, in a short, the short way, my shorthand of expressing all this is I ended up, I realized we would have to make the paper that I wanted to write for, for me to be able to write for. It was like we had to, you know, I wanted to create, you know, I say that, you know, I sometimes I'm an accidental businessman in the sense that I, I made a business to have a newspaper. I didn't make a newspaper to be, have a business in the sense that I don't know if I would have started another business. That was that was the thing that just from my head ended up. It's like, okay, I would like to work for such a paper. The city needs to have such a paper. I guess we should make it. There, there was that, and also I had worked for other publishers by then. At this point, I'd been an editor, and I, you know, and it's not complicated. The power of the press belongs with those who own the press. There's no other way to put it. I mean, at the end of the day, there will off there will be an issue almost inevitably where the interest of the ownership might be different than the desires of the writers. <clears throat> so when you're all of that in one package, that issue goes away. And, and, you know, so we got to have, that was part of creating the kind of paper I'd want to uh, read and write for is that to have that kind of freedom and be able to have a, a voice that was for some people is out there as now was. I was gonna say, I'm sorry. I, I, sorry to interrupt you. I know it was interesting what you, what you said a minute or so ago about, uh, wanting to create a paper that you would want to read because of all the musicians that I've spoken to over the years about, you know, well, I write songs that I've always wanted to hear, but didn't exist. Huh. That's wow. That's really interesting, Steve. So what were some of the first steps that you took towards making it a reality? Well, the good thing about my office, which was at Young and Blur, was I was right by the library. So, well, actually, the first thing I did was... For the, the government agency I worked for had previously published a magazine. They'd stopped making it because it was expensive and blah, blah, blah. But it actually was a useful thing. It was about uh, workplace safety. So I proposed relaunching that magazine for them, um, in part, to be honest, as a smokescreen for, for me doing research for my magazine. It, it, it did the job for them, but it gave me a reason to say, and it, <clears throat> we needed to sort of look at other media to get ideas. So I had every alternative news weekly in North America sent to me at that office. And it was a cute thing to be like, Oh, here's some more mail for Michael. And, you know, I mean, <clears throat> so that was hugely useful. I was also right beside the, uh, Metro resource li- reference library. So I went there and 
read books about how to start a business, how to get a bank loan, like all that. There was no internet, so you had to go actually read them. Alice, Alice took uh, courses at the Skills Exchange. I think it was called the Skills Exchange in Toronto or the Learning Annex. <clears throat> but, she, you know, and again, it was just sort of how to get a bank loan and had those kind of conversations, like real basic stuff, because we really didn't know. My business experience had been selling Fuller Brush door-to-door as a teenager. That was it. So what year, what year is this? <clears throat> 1980 was when we started working on it. We were driving to my parents' cottage. I'll never forget. We were driving to my parents' cottage. I was driving. Our little daughter was asleep in the car seat in the back. As we drove through Holland Marsh and started going up the hill out of Holland Marsh, I turned to her and said, I think we should start a paper like the Village Voice. And she immediately, she, and she did not react. And I'd never said such a thing to her before. And she wasn't shocked. She wasn't frightened. She was completely open to it. And got, you know, and as we spoke in the, in the rest of the drive, she was, she was in, which, you know, involved a huge risk because ultimately it, it meant I was leaving a very secure job that gave me very, you know, the hours are very, not taxing. I was, you know, so I've been putting everything on the line. And also the fact that we had no experience running businesses. These are all things to be concerned about, but she, uh, she responded positively right away. So how, how do you go? So what's the next, I mean, I, I understand that, you know, you went in and you did research about how to run a business and, you know, but so what is the first thing that you need to do to start up this kind of alternative music paper in a city like Toronto? I, I guess we had to sort of, I mean, we basically we had to create a document to convince people to invest in it. And, you know, in the process, we were creating a document that we're convincing ourselves that this was real and that this could actually happen. And so you know, that involved, you know, gathering information about the market. My father was in advertising, so I could talk to people at some of his agency buddies over at lunches and things and get some ideas ironically very little of what they said would happen happened <laughs> they didn't really do it i thought i thought eaton's was going to be all over now when it started i don't think they ever bought it but that's okay <laughs> you know many of the many of our assumptions proved to be wrong in fact but we so we created a uh, we created a business plan and you know we spelled out what our financial needs were and then we would have like dinner parties with friends of ours we had a lot of friends that were older than ours some reason I mean, this who are friends of like alice's mom alice's mom is very she used to uh she went to U of T later in her life so she knew a lot of people so um we would have sort of little parties and show people <clears throat> the, the, our business plan and we solicited investment an earlier supporter of now i sometimes forget was tom cochran tom cochran was part of the original group oh yeah that, 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 just that. I mean, that, that was, so yeah, that's it. Sort of anybody, anybody we, the one thing you do is you don't, you're not shy, right? We went anybody that we knew that had, and you know, we were, we were, I was more afraid about not getting the money than about being embarrassed for asking for the money. And so we would have the conversation with anybody that would listen. And to be honest, as fate would have it, the people that did listen, they did what they did well. I, I, you know, so that's kind of nice. <laughs> So was was it always going to be called now, or did you have alternative names that you were kicking around? We had many terrible names, many terrible names. In fact, we didn't get the right name till very late in the game. It was crazy. Like we had, 
really kind of dull names, to be honest. Like just they they sounded kind of corp. They sounded like the kind of names that Toronto Star would have invented in a funny way. They were those, and and um and we sort of so we kind of knew it was um they were placeholders a little bit. Although I really liked one of the names. But the rest of the group are like, those are place. That's a placeholder, right? It's like, uh. but we would again. We would have once we had our investment group. <clears throat> we would have again dinners because these we had these very fancy fr- uh, friends from France. So they would host these dinners, and we would have parties with people even who weren't investors. And we would just sit around, <clears throat> drink wine, probably smoke joints. Well, definitely smoke joints, and just uh, s- throw out names. Just keep making a list, making a list, and. You know, I mean, I have the list, and they're crazy. Like we were just so, so far off, and none of those processes actually explicitly generated the name. Although, who knows, right? I mean, it's you're thinking about. We don't know how the unconscious works because what happened was one day I was on at our home with Alice, but she, I was on the phone. I wasn't even. I was, you know, I mean, I knew she was there, but we weren't, we weren't connecting, talking to each other. So I'm on the phone talking, and Alice walked by me, kind of muttering. And she said, now, hmm, now, and maybe we should call it now. Like sort of to herself, I covered the phone. I said, that's, I said, I covered the phone. That's it. You just named it. That's the name. I told the person on the phone, Alice just named the paper. It's called now. Can you share any of the uh, awful names that you guys had considered? Well, one of the ones we had for a while was City Beat, which I thought would just, because, yeah, I know, right? Which I thought was shortened to The Beat. For some reason, I thought that was a cool name. I think it probably has something to do with some ska album that I liked that had that name at the time, but whatever. Or the English B. I don't know, but it was ridiculous. But this, there's crazy names like that. And then, of course, some of our colleagues, friends, because they were English was their second language, came up with some really crazy ones. <laughs> and we'd go, what the hell does that even mean? And they go, oh, it's different in French. It's like, okay. But it was fun. So how did, so how did you uh, put together your staff, your, your, um, your contributors? Well, I mean, again, you just never know how these things are going to turn out. There's a number of my pals from York, from York that I thought would, would come with me um, for a variety of reasons didn't at the, in the end. And so that core that I thought would be there wasn't necessarily all of the core. Um, but basically, I just sort of put the word out, you know, like there was – um yeah i just started putting the word out i guess we had some friends that i knew somewhat peripherally people that you you know you grew to know uh daryl young um who <clears throat> you know i know you know what steve uh, pardon me <laughs> there's a there's a third person i'm forgetting in all of this there was a fellow named gord graham and he was a buddy of mine from from we'd gone to school together in montreal he'd gone to university um, he came to York when I went to York and he was sort of part of the group. He was at the core of helping us get going. He was an early believer in that, which, and you need that. You need people that are just like, you know, not telling you you're crazy. I mean, unless they need to, but, and then he had some, he had some York people that I knew more peripherally, Daryl being one of them. And he invited, and Daryl didn't have anything particularly going on. So Daryl's, started uh helping us and what we asked daryl to do and and i was still working at the government job it was crazy like we we had an office on the danforth and i was whipping back and forth and daryl just basically started reaching out to uh event producers in toronto 
and started creating a listings database for us, which is a way of telling people that now was coming. And then in those conversations, um, some, uh, some names would come up. I think I was going to, I, I feel like I put a classified ad somewhere, but I can't imagine where that would have been. But I do, but I just know people sent me resumes and a few, and, and some of the key people in now were found that way, not the way I thought, which was, I thought would be my, all my old buddies. John Kaplan was just a resume. And I remember reading his resume and thinking, this guy sounds really good. And, and I had an idea of what I was hoping to get in a theater critic at that time. I wanted someone to be more supportive. I thought that, you know, I thought that, uh, I thought that the local theater was being judged in a way that was kind of ridiculous in terms of it was being sort of everyone, the, the, the daily papers are writing about it. Like, like they, they, that it should be like a Broadway productions. And, and I, I was, you know, looking for someone who could be supportive of indie theater and John Kaplan came and we, we sat in the backyard and talked for a while. And he was my guy. He was, he, he was, I think he's, went on to be a revered and beloved uh, part of the theater community in Toronto, you know, until his passing. So we found him that way. John Harkness was, who was, I think was a great, one of the greatest film writers I've ever read. He was same. he came, you know, I, I got his, his, his resume. Unlike John Kaplan, John Harkness, I didn't connect with. And I, I, I think I ran into him at a press conference before now launched at a film festival of festivals, it was called. And I was at this event and I saw him and he was trying to talk with me. And I actually, for some bizarre reason, was avoiding him. I just didn't like his vibe. And then I read his, 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 his articles and I thought, oh my God, I hope I didn't insult this guy by it. And um, showed it, his writing to Alice and she agreed that he was, looked, he was amazing, tracked him down. He was ready to go. And he wrote with us, Till his passing as well, you know, and then um, the other writer, you know, Daryl Young, just helping out. He kind of, we would try him out as a writer. He had a friend, James Mark, who he sort of brought in. And these were guys that really, I was the, pretty much the only person that had experience making newspapers. And we were sort of, <clears throat> I had it in my mind, <clears throat> there was even some kind of weird, <clears throat> almost lefty thing that I thought the writers shouldn't just write but they should make the paper, like paste it up. In those days, you'd have to paste it up with stuff. And I really did. I thought that was, they needed to be part of the whole process. So I was teaching all these people how to handle knives and wax paper. And again, you know, these were not the most soberest conditions. Sometimes a fingertip would end up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah. But we got, you know, we all... <laughs> So yeah, so that so we so I literally thought the so they were actually not just writing but making the paper. So it was you know this thing was evolving right in, in real time. You know we launched now with a cover price. We were going to sell it. And what was that cover price? Fifty cents, which would be a lot back then. I mean, concert tickets were four dollars, I think, in some cases. But it was wishful thinking. The Village Voice was for sale. Village Voice had a cover price. I I thought it. I was obsessed and I was horribly wrong about this whole idea, but we gave, we did give out, um, uh, free, you know, one good idea I had was to give away free copies at, at the film festival. And we actually published the film festival schedule. If you can believe it, no one was publishing the film festival schedule in those days. I mean, 
you know, so we, that was, so I reached out to them. We became the exclusive place for the, for the film festival listings in our very first issue. So it was a huge leg up for us. And they agreed to let us distribute in their theaters. Also a huge leg up. So they had two people come help us make the, the listings for them. One of them was um, Pierce Handling, who went on to become the head of the film festival. And the other person helping him was Rena Pauly, Jim Cuddy's wife. Wow. Who I didn't know. Blue Rodeo, Blue Rodeo didn't exist. It was just a random thing. But she... So, but Rena and, and Pierce were helped helped us get it going. So we were giving away thousands of free papers into the festival of festivals, but we were trying to sell them. They weren't going very well. And I mean, okay, I mean, the crazy story is I was at a friend's house. We were about a month, six weeks into publishing. I went to use his bathroom. Taped to the lid of his toilet seat was an insane letter. I don't know why he put it there, but I reading it as I was doing my business and I went into the room and said, what the hell was that? Who the hell wrote that letter? And he goes, it's a guy named Buzz Burza. And he used to do distribution for the skills exchange in Toronto. And now he's gone to New York to do that. I said, what are you telling? Do you know a guy that actually knows circulation? I said, for, you know, please connect me with this guy. And so I phoned him. Uh, in New York, he had an incredible. It was like talking to Jack Kerouac blended into Allen Ginsberg blended into I don't know Marilyn Monroe or something. It was like his way of speaking blew my mind. And it, he he basically said he would come up from New York and help me with circulation if I could find him a couch to sleep on and pay for his train ticket. And he also said he'd bring me a bunch of racks that weren't being used by his current employer, which I hope his current employer would agree with. <laughs> and so he showed so so he showed up and he came to Toronto with all these racks, like dragging this big cardboard box. Daryl Young and I were picking him up at like midnight at Union Station. He was way older than us. We were like punks early in our early twenties. He seemed very old to us because he was in his forties. <laughs> and and uh Pretty quickly, he convinced me that the – oh, no, actually, it took, it took until January 82. So we did four months where we were still sort of selling. But this guy, Buzz, was also giving away papers in selective places. So that's so – like, but it was all under the guise of being an introductory. Mm-hmm. And he, but he, this guy was amazing. Like he, we were being speakeasies that I didn't even know existed. Like it was – he was doing he – was, he was brilliant. And what he did and he really was very important to our success and so by so by um the by christmas we were we were tapped out we were we were in bad shape we had spent i thought i'd raised money enough money for years we had had turned out we'd only raised enough money for months but um talking with everyone we came to the conclusion that we could make a smaller paper um and 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 use the money we saved on making a smaller paper to make more of them and make it for free. Because it's a huge waste, you know, when you're, when you're selling a paper, like if you sell half of them, that's considered a great result. Um, if you're giving them away, you know, we, it, it, you're, you're shooting for a hundred percent, you know, and now norm usually it was around 95 to 98%, which is magnificent. So, so I'm sorry. So you launched in September, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Around the, the film festival. Yep. And how many pages? So, how many pages were you publishing when it was a paid paper? Twenty-four. 
which is still small now, but I mean, okay. but we, but we went to 16 and we gave it away and that really helped. And that was after the new year or yes, Christmas time? Yes, the new year. So how was, how was the paper accepted at first? Um, I mean, yeah. <laughs> did, it, did it become, I guess I, the, the real question is, when did it become sort of a part of the cultural scene of Toronto? How long did that take? That's a good question. I mean, you know, there's a certain um, narcissism in, in this kind of a project that, I mean, in my mind, people loved it pretty quickly, you know, but that's, that's just because we were so steeped in it. It was so much our world. It was almost, you know, it was a cause. It was a religion. It was very, so consuming. I mean, you know, actually, crazy thing is Toronto Life within months of starting publishing, Toronto Life <clears throat> sent someone around to kind of sniff around and see about becoming involved with us, you know, investing. Like, I, I forgot about all this, but in the very first months that happened. And also a really important thing that happened is Moses Neimer reached out to me. And all of this happened in our first weeks, really. Like, which is, I mean, so I think, you know, just talking to you, Steve, I'm remembering this now. I couldn't answer your question initially, but it's because people, enough people embraced it right away. Like Michael Budman from Roots phoned me like after our fourth issue or something. The first time we put a celebrity on the cover and he goes, now you got it. And it was like, whoa, that's cool. The guy that owns Roots just phoned me. Like, and, you know, and <clears throat> as I said, Toronto Life, uh, Michael Poncier, he had people reach out. And Moses Neimer had a really cryptic way of reaching out to me. It was fantastic. Patty Habib, who would go on to, to launch the, MBC, uh, the the Bamboo, was working with Moses, helping him on some pay TV project he was developing. But Patty also had a speakeasy in what is now Liberty Village, the greatest speakeasy I ever saw went to in Toronto called the MBC. So she phoned me and said, hey, this paper looks cool. We had this club. Um, you should think about coming by. And it's like, okay, that sort of sounds cool. But it was like, you know, it opened up at 1 a.m., which was crazy late. I had a little kid. Um, <clears throat> but then she goes, oh, and so we had a long conversation. Oh, and oh, she goes, oh, and my call, my boss, Moses Neimer, he's going to be there. And he says he wants to meet you. And that's when a light went on. I went, oh, my God. I told Alice, we have to get babysitting. We have to go to this place. We have to be there to meet this guy. There's something going on here. And... We were hanging around. It was getting late. I was getting tired. And then, you know, and then Moses comes in and he goes to the uh, bar. And I was in another conversation. I broke it off and I went to the bar and pretended not to see him. I just started talking to the bar tender. She said, oh, no, it was Patty. Patty was at the bar. Patty goes, oh, Moses is here. He wants to meet you. Oh, is he? Oh, you have to introduce us. And then Moses sitting just sort of turns towards me. It's very sardonically. He goes, Hello, Michael, you know, and it's sort of like, and then we just started talking and basically, so I started doing a dance with Moses and doing a dance with Toronto Life, both ostensibly to get them to invest because we knew we were going to run out of money. But the process of being in those conversations with potential investors taught us so much about running our business that ultimately we didn't need to take on those investors. And, and I think all of them were fine with it. Like, they, you know, like to the point, like, I mean, I had a very apocryphal moment with, with, um, with Moses because he, he, he kept introducing me. I mean, he was, he was amazing. He was so supportive. 
And, you know, I would have crazy moments where I'd be at home and I'd be like freaking out like, oh, my God, I got to find a way to get this money. And I knew Moses was like, he was, you know, he took great pleasure. He'd always be at his office like late at night. So I would get up, get dressed and drive down to city TV and wait on the sidewalk at like 1.30 at night. And he would come out and say, Moses, you didn't get back to me a couple of days. I didn't, and I go, ooh, and they sort of, and then he would, then he would commit to like another meeting. And so, so, you know, ultimately we um, had tons and tons of meetings. And then at a certain point, it was, my, it was the new music's 100th, 100th episode party at the concert hall. Moses and I are talking at the front of the room. Everybody's eyes are on us because if you're with Moses, that's what it was like then. And we're talking. And basically, he's, like, there, was that, there was now a deal. Like, he was part of a deal. And he basically talked me out of the deal. said, you don't need it. If you don't need this deal, don't take it. It's basically what he said to me, which was incredible. And it, wow. yeah, like, because I, Amazing. yeah, like the deal, I wanted the deal so badly. Like, you know, because I was, you know, I owed people money. I owed staff, like st people were being patient with their payment. And, and he said to me, he goes, you know, I know that feeling. You know, he said, when I started City TV, I was, you know, desperate to like be able to, you know, pay everybody that I that had believed in me and blah blah blah. And he said, and he talked about selling to City TV to Chum. But he goes, you know, and then once a week I have to go to a board meeting with my bosses at Chum because you you think about that. And I was like, whoa, I don't want to have a boss. I mean, I, I mean, I I went off and I thought about it. I said, I talked to Alice. I said, I think the guy was giving me a message that she we both. It's like, whoa, it's true. And basically, we went back to the people that we had owed some money, including staff members and also our original investors. And we said, look, Moses Neimer, City TV, Toronto Life, all these companies believe in this project. They want to make a deal with us. But that second money is always a worse deal. You, don't, you, don't, you have to give more shares to get the cash. So we, so we, said, so we said to everybody, we'll give you the second money deal that was being given to us like we'll flip our debt to, to shares at that rate do you want to do that and they all said yes so some of them became shareholders and now and we didn't have to take on that new money we had the confidence that the money was there that people that knew what they were doing believed in us enough to put the money in and then so then we thought realized okay we don't need it let's let's just go for it let's do this which is what happened and moses you know to, he was always you know, he never had any regrets. I said, Moses, I said, you know, he goes, Michael, it worked out. Did I said, yeah. He says, I said, you know, you, you uh, he goes, I gave you hope. I said, yes, you gave me hope. And that's what kept me going until I had more than hope to sustain me. Wow. Yeah. That is an amazing story. <laughs> I've hardly ever told it. It's but crazy. I, he, yeah, it was remarkable. He was like, wow. He was like a guru to me. Like I was, this, I was 24. He'd launched this cool television station mm. yeah. <laughs> and done so much more. Amazing. So do you, do you guys still speak? I mean, not as much, you know, I mean, but not, not, not by design. We just don't bump into each other. But we certainly, you know, like mm -hmm. when he, when he bought the city TV building, he called me, he, like the day he bought it, he brought me in and walked me around and showed me this is going to be this and this is going to be that. Like we definitely... We were very connected. He says that he got the idea for, um, oh my God, for Speaker's Corner from a now party because I had 
We had a TV setup. We had a speaker's corner thing at, an, at a very, very early now party. And then so he went and put it at, the new, at that new building. So, but we were very engaged, certainly through the 80s, where it was really, you know, very important for, for both of us, I think. So, I mean, obviously, you know, running a business, any business is difficult and running a newspaper can be, have its own set of challenges. Did it ever feel like it was easier? You know, the, the, the scenario I just described, that went down in 1983, so that was so, so basically for a year and a half, we were limping along and you can see there's a picture. Like we used to run these big pictures on page three and there's an issue that just shows someone from the shoulders to the waist and there's two thumbs up. <laughs> and that's the day that we kind of knew we were solid, but you know, in terms of getting easier, I mean, it, it never got easy, but it was always a pleasure because there was, you know, I mean, just, you know, you get different problems, but I mean, these are all problems that are all the currency that allows us to have the great joy, which was publishing now. I mean, I can't imagine a more fun and satisfying thing for me personally to do. And it was all of that. But, you know, at the beginning, I was worried about, could I even do it? Did I know what I was doing? And could I pay the people that had believed in me? And then you had bigger, you know, then you had different problems. And, you know, I mean, we had, a, we had a hundred people working for us at our peak. Um, and, you know, I mean, if we got something wrong, they could really screw somebody up. So it's, you know, so yeah, so you just got different problems. Then, of course, and then it's hanging on, and then eventually it becomes hanging on to it when the sort of the economy changes, when business model changes. So it's never quite smooth sailing, but, you know, certainly the financial success created a bit of a net, you know, a net. Did uh, being the publisher of now um, give you any unexpected opportunities? I mean, Many, many, many. I mean, you know, and I feel blessed and fortunate for so many of them. I mean, it's and so much of about <clears throat> about I guess what it would be would just be access, and and, and you know, and opportunities to meet interesting people, and you know, I mean, as you know, Steve, I mean, you you know better than many. You know, there's there's a lot of famous people, and then there's but there's fewer really cool ones, just like anything else. And so, you know, I mean, for me, you know, for me, I mean, I was thinking about this one recently, you know. One of the really good ones was when I got, when Ken Casey came and hung out at my house and I introduced him to sushi for the first time. That was pretty awesome. And sort of, and that sparked a friendship that, you know, went on for a while. And I mean, that guy was one of my, well, it remains one of my heroes. So to spend time with him and be getting life lessons and parenting lessons from Ken Casey, that was, thank you very much now magazine, you know? So things like that, I mean, just, you know, the wonderful people I've got to meet and, and then relationships that grew out of that. And, you know, some of those people are well known and, and some of those people are not known at all. And, you know, they've all been fascinating. So what led to um, you establishing the North by Northeast um, festival? Um, a number of things. I mean, critical to it is that some of my best friends started South by Southwest. You know, they, they um, Lewis, Lewis Black. <clears throat> oh my God, my mind's, Mine's going anyway. But <laughs> Lewis, Lewis, and Nick, uh, Nick Barbaro, were publishers of the Austin Chronicle. So we met through our the alternative newspaper community, and you know, and in fact, now was bigger than their paper. So I was giving them advice. You know, they were biweekly. I helped them get to, to go weekly. And then at a certain point, and then in, they, they told me. So we guess we probably met in eighty or anyway. 
they told me they were starting South by Southwest. So I had sort of a ringside seat seeing how that evolved and grew. And, and, and really their process, again, they didn't start it to become, to be what it was. They started it because their music guys, like you know, music and arts folks like myself, and they saw something happening in Austin that they wanted to, you know, bring attention to. They thought they were making a regional music festival. And it's sort of, so I, I was literally by their shoulders through the, the, you know, the conception and then the realization of South by, and it was pretty evident that many of the components that existed in Austin, Texas, that made it so good for South by Southwest existed in Toronto. You know, we, you know, we have had and have a live music scene that rivals any in the world, you know, I mean, you know, much better than New York city's certainly, at, you know, at the time, a lot of places and and you know the will and also a critical part is the audiences we have audiences like lincoln austin who are prepared to hear artists that are not necessarily mainstream but that but that that um that meet that that you just, that they like that they're, they're not afraid to like something just on its merit as opposed to needing it to be popular and that's something that austin audiences and toronto audiences shared so you know and also frankly i always wanted to you know on a personal level i it was I always wanted to have a for reason to be completely, you know, to be invested in the live music scene, especially the evolving uh, and new music. And, you know, so there was a sort of a selfish piece that, that that would be a great thing for me to to help me keep my hand in all of that. But mostly it was to meet, you know, the, the, the it was to meet a need um, in a city that where the conditions exist to meet that need. And, you know, I had to obviously a huge, a huge advantage of launching North by Northeast with South by Southwest as my partners. The first five years, I believe, the founders of South by came up with their staff, 10 to 20 staff members, and helped us produce North by. And, and, and the torch was, it was a real process of the torch being passed, where initially they were doing it, then we started doing it with them, then we were doing it, they were kind of making sure, you know, watching. And then finally it's like, okay, just come for fun. We got this. Now, who were, who were some of the first acts that you actually booked for North by Northeast? Well, we were really like, well, our first speaker was Patty Smith. So that was pretty cool. Very cool. <clears throat> and, you know, I mean, it, it, again, you're talking about great things that might happen in doing this job. Um, I, I would have a hotel where we held the conference. So I had a hotel at during the first North by there's a knock on my door. I open the door. It's Patty Smith by herself standing in a Detroit Red Wings Jersey. And it was, a, you know, and I was like, I was like, there is a, this is a God. Like this is, this is like two of my, my worlds coming together, hockey and music, you know, punk rock. It's like, yes, please. Thank you. And she was a huge hockey fan. And it was when the Leafs and the Red Wings were having, you know, epic playoff runs. So we had a good hockey talk and then she did a photo shoot for us for the festival. And so she spoke at the first North by, she was amazing. I remember we had, um, a band called, Oh, what were they? Weeping tile. who turned out to be Sarah Harmer, of course. Um, they were amazing. Robert Earl Keane. We had a lot of rootsy stuff. We had a lot of stuff from Texas. Um, yeah. Let's just go back to the paper now and just sort of finish off with this. What do you, where do you see the future of print media and publishing in general? I think it's very real. And, um, you know, I, I think everything has to evolve. 
obvious, this is such a truism, it's ridiculous, but you know, you can't stay static. You know, when, when we launched now, one of the conversations was, oh, daily newspapers have no young readers. They're in decline. You know, young people don't pick up newspapers, uh, daily newspapers. And we were in part responding to that issue. I think that the daily newspapers, as much as I love them and want them to thrive, haven't changed. You know, basically, I think they're making a, a huge mistake, and basically, they're diminishing their offering, and they're asking um, people to pay more for it. I mean, it just—I don't get how they think that's going to work. I mean, I think, you know, the daily newspapers look more or less the same as they did 10, 15 years ago. They just have less stuff in them. Well, I don't see how that model will work. But I think, I don't think the notion of print is dead. I mean. You know, now more than ever, we're living in a world where everyone is getting digital digital fatigue. You know, people are doing puzzles. You know, I mean, there's a whole, you know, I mean, 20-year-olds play croquet in, in parks. <clears throat> you know, it's like, it's just, I think if there's a fresh approach to print, there will be an appetite for it. I mean, I think, you know, we saw with vinyl, like people like to hold stuff. They like to, you know, tactile. It's nice to experience it. And I think um, I think a print publication that celebrates what's great about print will succeed. And in fact, I'm about to launch one as soon as the pandemic calms down. So I, I believe in print and so do my my new partners. So what what does that mean with regards what what is celebrating what's great about print to you? I think it's got to be really visual. Like there's something very much as basic as frequency. Like I think you know, I think a daily new, what made great daily newspapers great was, you know, they felt like they were a timely reporting of the news. Well, obviously that function is gone. When I launched now, when we launched now, a huge part of what now is all about was listings. Well, now listings in print are pretty much pointless, but there's things about print that are fantastic. And, you know, um, and one of it is how beautiful it can be. You know, I think, you know, like one of the, you know, one of the things that was important to the early success of now is that we really put a lot of, and continue to put a lot of emphasis on the visual and, you know, we paid a lot of money for photography, you know, and, and I think, you know, as publishers try to squeeze their offering into smaller and smaller papers, the visual part is disappearing, you know, and you get these gray newspapers, gray publications that are saying, read me because it's good for you. I'm good for you. And I just don't think that that's going to ever be compelling to people but i think a beautiful newspaper a beautiful magazine or that has um that has uh has not quite evergreen but has the kind of content that you can read now or you can read again in six weeks so that would you know tend to involve really great writing like really great long reads you know that are almost narratives sort of back to the tradition of new journalism that i think that launched now the kind of article that's going to be more fun to read at your leisure in print where you don't have to worry about glare on the screen or whatever and you want to because it's compelling enough so you have some great long-form journalism combined with sort of shorter bits um and, and beautiful graphics and interactivity i want the, the magazine that I'm going to make next is going to be one that's going to be very worn at the end because you'll have interacted with it. You'll have played with it. You'll have used it. So to use its very physicality, that's where I'm going. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Michael. 
Before you leave, please follow or subscribe to the podcast for more stories of human beings.